prescriptivism really all began when um, Dryden started rewriting some of Shakespeare's plays. This week we have a guest, Ingrid Tieken from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Ingrid is here to talk to us about descriptivism and prescriptivism and her project, Bridging the Unbridgeable. If you spend any time thinking about English usage and watching your language, you'll know that there is a certain category of people who lean toward the prescriptivist idea of having a correct set of rules to follow. And there are others, mainly academic linguists, and others who feel that the thing to do about English usage is to observe it and describe it. Of course, nobody's one way or the other entirely. Ingrid's project looks at the history of prescriptivism and usage guides. She's a scholar in the matter and the author of The Bishop's Grammar. Also with me, as usual, is Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage book and website, I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Uh, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. And hello, Ingrid. Hello, Tom. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ingrid. Hi. Paul and I are talking with Ingrid Tieken, who is at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And she's Hi. going to tell us a little about her project, Bridging the Unbridgeable. Uh, Ingrid, what's that about? What is it about? What is unbridgeable, you mean? Well, yeah, what is what What are we bridging and, and what's unbridgeable? Okay, uh, well, the subtitle of the project is um, Linguists, Prescriptivists and the General Public. And my experience is that it's very hard to talk to linguists. I mean, I'm a linguist myself, but, you know, theoretical linguists, um, colleagues of mine, uh, about prescriptivism. And... Um, we also, I also noticed that um, the general public is very interested in prescriptivism, is worried about prescriptivism, is scared about all these uh, rules that they're constantly breaking. Um, so we thought that that would be interesting to study. And um, because we're uh, studying uh, language on uh, an empirical basis, so we're interviewing people, we're looking at actual usage and real data, uh, we're doing a linguist's job, basically, and um, we were hoping to convince linguists, uh, my colleagues, for instance, in Leiden, that uh, we're doing a good job and an interesting job as well. Now, just to backpedal a, a, a little bit, uh, prescriptivism is that style of that approach of usage that says there are some there are rules to follow. And uh, if you break the rules, there's something wrong. And right. uh, that's opposed, as opposed to what would be called descriptivism, which right. describes how the language is being used. So even if, uh, even if these prescriptivist rules are being broken uh, a thousand times a second, um, they're still rules, according to a prescriptivist. But a descriptivist would uh, analyze the, the problem, as it were, or however you want to put it, and say, no, no, no. <laughs> This is how this is the way the language is being used. Uh, let's not judge it so, right or wrong. Right. So if everybody uses um, split infinitives, for instance, then that's fine. 
But the split infinitive is it's almost like an icon of uh, prescriptivism because lots of people get really worked up uh, worked up worked up about seeing a, a split infinitive. Well, and, except that in usage guides written by people you might describe as descriptivists, almost none of them will endorse that rule. That's more or less a popular culture phenomenon. If you look at usage is. guides, very few of them will argue against split infinitives. But we're looking back into uh, uh, time and we're taking it all the way back to the beginning of the tradition ah, uh, because, okay. because we're interested in um, seeing um, how it got came to be accepted in the course of time. Mm-hmm. And there's still some people, amazingly, some people today who um, um, say, um, uh, usage guide writers, who say that you shouldn't use a, uh, a split infinitive, for instance, because it might be distracting. And I actually think that might be the case. I, Ingrid, I think you're right, at least in people's perception, that just to take this one specific thing, the split infinitive, there is a, a perception uh, that comes from that history of it being proscribed and yes. you're and it's not going people perceive it as something as a rule even though if they opened up a modern usage guide they would see that there's no usage guide that actually prohibits it these days right so um and that just goes back. And at some point, the divide does get crossed so that probably I'm just taking you at your word. And uh, for, and I think I've seen this elsewhere that, that this was something I, I it might even be, show up in Strunk and White. Is that right? It might even what? Uh, show up in Strunk and White, the elements of style. Probably, probably does. I've got it with me here. I could look it up for you. Um, I'm sure it does. What we um, it, it probably does. What we want to do uh, in the project is to try to find out why um, features like this, the split infinitive, and there are loads of others, why they got criticized to begin with. And, yeah, I always find that interesting, too. And, well, from what I found uh, now, there are two things that are, uh, that are interesting about this, is that um, uh, the first um, proscription has been traced back to uh, New England, uh, in the New England Journal, I believe, to uh, 18, the 1830s, and it was said there that uneducated people um, use split infinitives. So um, there's a group of people that probably everybody uses split infinitives, and they probably have done all uh, through history, but it's this group of people that gets associated with it, um, gets, uh, gets uh, stigmatized, as it were, for, for using this particular phenomenon. And from that time onwards, it becomes a rule that you should uh, avoid the split infinitive um, because it's associated with uneducated people. And another thing I find interesting, because, well, you mentioned just now, you mentioned my book, The Bishop's Grammar. Um, the bishop in this case is Robert Lauf, who uh, lived in the 18th century, and um, who is probably also like the split infinitive uh, for usage rules, is probably the uh, normative grammarian that is uh, considered to be uh, the most uh, prescriptive uh, grammar writer. And uh, he gets associated with all kinds of uh, uh, rules about so-called, perceived, as you say, uh, bad English. And um, there are uh, people who believe that he made up the rule against the split infinitive. But he didn't, because 
the split infinitive is much younger as a as a language problem, if you like, than Louth. And I find that quite funny, actually. I mean, because of his status as a normative grammarian, he gets associated with all that is ba- bad about normative grammar. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm interested in, in something you said when you first started out. You said uh, linguists are difficult to talk to or talk with. What did you mean by that? Well, my colleagues in uh, the Leiden University Center for Linguistics, they are, uh, most of them are are uh, theoretical linguists and they, as you uh, mentioned earlier on, or Tom did, I think, um, want to describe usage and um, they're descriptive and um, they are worried uh, when you raise the uh, point of prescriptivism. But we, as sociolinguists, are interested in the phenomenon as such, I mean, why would people condemn usages of, like I said earlier, um, um, that's a, that's a usage problem, by the way. It's, you become very self-conscious when you uh, when you speak, and you can't um, say things like that anymore. Uh, anyway, um, where was I going? Yeah, the um, question was, uh, why are they hard to speak with? <laughs> Because they um, they think um, you shouldn't impose rules on the language, but we're interested in um, the phenomenon as such from a social linguistic perspective. Why uh, people do so? Why people get worried uh, uh, about making uh, linguistic mistakes and so on? Well, I have a question. Um, are there linguists? And I must admit, I don't follow uh, linguists very much, except when they come out and criticize usage guides. But okay. Are there people, and are you one of those people, who study the social phenomenon of how disapproval of certain usages influences the use of language? In other words, to me, if you study only common usage and look, well, let's see what's dominant, let's see what's current in uh, usage, um, clearly, there are different levels of usage. The usage that you'd find in uh, an article in the New York Times would be right. different from that of somebody singing street rhymes to a skip rope. Right. Uh, there's all kinds of, of levels of diction. One of those levels is the level that prescriptivists recommend. They're a right. social phenomenon, too. Um, it, it seems to be almost this artificial division between the people who use language and the prescriptivists who describe language, well, they're, they're also using language and they have a certain influence. Those old usage guides that railed against the split infinitive are still echoing in their influence down the centuries. And there's yes. still people torturing themselves to try to avoid split infinitives. Yes. It strikes me that to say those people who are still adhering to that, adhering to that old rule, fake as it may be, are um, in some way not just as much a part of the social conversation about language <laughs> as the people who are blissfully unaware of it. it <laughs> if you're going to describe the social phenomenon of language usage, seems to me uh, the uses that offend some editors and some teachers and some readers is an important thing to know about. Yes. And that's what usage guides do. It has to do, usage guides have to do, and they, um, they, um, help people, um, uh, use language appropriately in certain contexts. So for instance, if you, uh, um, 
were to apply for a job and um, if you um, were used to say I have went for instance instead of I have gone people might think you're illiterate and they might not want to um, to accept you for a particular job in which well language is important yeah so, I don't know oh go ahead sorry no 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 what were you going I, to I was going to ask if you have listened to any of our um, previous podcasts Tom and I recently had a half hour conversation about something the New York Times wrote about um, and not for the first time by any means, the tendency of women on dating sites to say that they will immediately eliminate from their potential partners anybody who misspells or uses non-standard uh, grammatical constructions or whatever. And wow. So, you know, uh, that that is really actually quite a phenomenon, and it's a social it phenomenon. Yes. So the so there's one set of social phenomena which are changing the language and uh, exploring in ways that are frowned upon by prescriptivists, as you call them. But there's another very large body of people who are changing the way they approach language by judging it. And they, they don't aren't always listening to people like me, who I consider myself somewhere in the middle, because I try to describe often who would be offended by this. And, you know, I'll say, Tom, do you have today's uh, post handy? I don't have it, but it's a really good example. Oh, it's uh, none and none. Yeah. Why don't you read that aloud? Um, well, all right. I will in <laughs> just a second here. Let me see. Uh Right. This is this is talking about the word none and um the difficulty of trying to figure out the singular whether it's singular or plural, yeah. So so the article goes this way. There's a lot of disagreement about this one. None can be either singular or plural depending on the meaning you intend and its context in the sentence. Uh none of the pie is left is clearly singular none of the chocolates is left is widely accepted as is none of the chocolates are left if it's not obvious to you which way it should be don't worry few of your readers will be certain either right now that's my general approach to this sort of thing which i uh -huh. consider a kind of descriptivism and is trying to find out and i do a lot of research on the web to do this but i also read a lot of other writers um, who is it that's getting upset or offended or annoyed or confused by a particular thing? To me, that's another kind of descriptivism. Right. It, it's a different question, isn't it, I suppose? Yes, the one I'm interested in. <laughs> yes. Um, so who gets, you mean the linguistically insecure, for instance? Mm, no, I just mean... Um, if if there are certain things, for instance, oh, well, let's take a, another example. Um, if you, you mean the sticklers for correctness, mm, not necessarily. There are even usage communities. For instance, if uh, you were to say in a uh, talk about a movie, um, the hero of this movie was really mean and nasty. Um, uh, you might get by with that in ordinary speech, but if you were writing about a novel in an English class and said. Um, the hero of Notes from Underground is a thoroughly unlikable guy. Well, the teacher is going to say, you know, he's pretty famous. It's the first anti-hero. And um, we don't really use he's the protagonist. He's the narrator. But uh, in English, we don't use hero in that sense. 
you've got a different ling- uh, language community there. And if you wanted to get published in a literary journal or deliver a paper on a piece of literature, you'd know the difference between protagonist and hero. Right. So it, those are not just matters of being picky. They're different actual language usage um, groups. And it's there. There's subdivisions. There are almost dialects. And uh, for instance, um, in if if somebody says uh, you done you you disrespected me, that is very much associated with hip hop culture, and, and it's now w- widely enough used. It's it's uh, usually understood, but it would might sound strange to somebody who wasn't used to hearing disrespected in that sense uh, uh-huh. which often means you annoyed me <laughs> um, uh-huh. and in and actually it has good historical roots you go back far enough you find disrespect used in that very sense and in my article i i go through all that so i try okay. to describe its evolution but also say okay if if you're in a job interview and uh they ask you uh, why'd you leave your previous job if you said well they just dissed me that's probably not a good thing to say. Not that it's grammatically wrong or anything. It's just part of a different register of speech. I suppose it might help if the uh, person interviewing the um, interviewee uh, had children of the same age, for instance. Then they might recognize, okay, this is uh, probably uh, nerves or uh, because they come from a a different uh, background if they allow for uh, people saying things like that or if they recognize it as colloquial uh, usage uh, without wanting to make too much of it. Yeah, but they also might think, geez, I wouldn't hire my own kids. (laughs) It just depends. (laughs) You don't know what you're going to run up against. I used to uh, meet with uh, parents who were bringing, coming with their offspring to college for an orientation. And there would be a special reception where the students would be off getting some work. And then I would meet with the parents. Mm-hmm. And it was an informal setting. And very frequently, uh, when I told my, them that I was in English, and I was teaching literature. I wasn't teaching writing or grammar or anything like that. But they would almost immediately say, oh, the language I get on job applications. soon as I see a... <laughs> You know, a split infinitive or some other thing. I just toss those aside. I just don't go through them. I've seen that many, many times. Yes, that's exactly my point. And I think it's terrible, but I think it's terrible too. But I think it's it's it's. I'm I'm not a native speaker of English, obviously. But I think it would be very good to make people aware of the fact that um, um, even native speakers, but non-native speakers um, as well. Uh, that there are these attitudes towards uh, uh, particular uh, usages. Right, but it's it's. One you don't thing. want the point is I tell my students you don't want. I mean, I used to think I didn't use uh, the split infinitive myself. I did my best to avoid it, but I can hear myself use it all the time now. Um, so I, I guess you know my uh, English is changing in that respect as well. But if you don't want the attention to go away from what you're trying to say, this is a common. Um, a common idea, isn't it, about uh, avoiding um, um, features like that, um, that you uh, might try to avoid them, depending on the circumstances. Right, exactly. And I have a question about when your study, when you're looking at usage guides, 
do you try to distinguish between what different usage guides are doing or are you aiming mostly at what they have in common? Um, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, you said you're studying the culture of prescriptivism, which is yeah. what usage guides reflect. Um, and I don't consider myself a hardcore prescriptivist by any means, but, um, when, when you're discussing them for your study and in your book that you're preparing to do, are you trying to pull out just common threads that all these have, the common attitudes, or are you trying to see differences between them? I consider Eat Shoots and Leaves to be, for instance, a very different book from mine. Yes, we're not looking at uh, spelling, uh, I'm afraid, because it's such a huge topic, so we're just looking at uh, grammar, and we made um, a selection. I think we have 123 uh, usage problems in our uh, database uh-huh. and 77 usage guides. We're looking at tendencies. So we're looking at, for instance, just now I've been looking at the flat adverb. I discovered that um, flat adverbs, the term flat adverbs, although it originated, I'm a historical linguist as well, it originated in uh, the UK, so as a, a British English term. It's more use, used as a term in American English. And I find that fascinating. That's one thing I find fascinating. For our um, listeners, why don't you give a, an example or two? Okay, go slow. Uh-huh. So that that's that's the flat adverb. So uh, as opposed to go slowly. Yeah, Lee, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. As as opposed to go slowly. So there's variation between slow and uh, slowly. And uh, today I've been looking at data um, that I'm writing an article together with one of my PhD students on the flat adverb and on usage advice. And uh, we saw differences between British and American English. So that's one thing we're interested in. We have about half our usage guides are British. The other half are American. There are, of course, um, usage guides in, uh, about other language varieties. But this, as I said, this is really a huge topic. So we decided to focus on those two only. And uh, what we found, for instance, I just now I mentioned have went. I have went to that party instead of uh, according to... Um, Correct, as you, if you like, uh, grammar, um, I have gone to that party, uh, proved to be um, uh, more particularly an American usage problem than a British one. It is dealt with in British usage guides from the earliest day onwards, so from the end of the 18th century onwards. But in British English, it seems to have become more of a, a dialectal uh, feature than a usage problem. Uh-huh. Well, which in itself can be a usage problem if your dialect yeah. is such that it, it runs into trouble when you're in a different social setting. It's less of a problem in the UK than uh-huh. in America. Huh. I, you know, I've, the only place I've run into people complaining about that sort of thing is, is typically been in, in columnists, not particularly language columnists, but just people being picky. What was the Apple slogan that they had for it? Think different. Oh, think different. That's yes, right. That was it. And that got a huge amount. You know, I thought. Very good, it was actually. a clever play on words myself. And, and also it's very good because then Apple gets into, into, gets a lot of attention. Oh, yes. But, <laughs> very successful. So it's very clever, really, if you can, if you can draw in language like that. 
the thing that annoys me when linguists talk about prescriptivism and about usage guides in particular is that I get the feeling that they're looking for their pet peeves, things that they think prescriptivists have all wrong. And they're very prescriptive about this. And they look to see whether the usage guide has those particular pet peeves in it, the things that they're uh, concerned to think that this is wrongly being prohibited. And they aren't exploring what else interesting might be going on in the usage guides that they might even agree with or that don't come, fall into the same categories that they've pre-established. One of the things that I've spent a lot of time in is just people getting different words mixed up with each other. That's not a grammatical question. It's just a vocabulary That's question. Cool, yeah. And expressions that get mangled. There's a whole uh, index in the back of the book that's uh, about mangled expressions. Right. And there are, you know, usage doesn't rule <laughs> all the time. And usage guides can do a lot of interesting things. It, it in like I said, I, there's that. Well, I'll let you comment on that. It's just it annoys me to see um, these uh, linguists address usage guides only when they want to pick apart what's wrong with them instead of seeing, well, what might they have interesting to say? Yes, exactly. My 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 point about starting this project um, uh, five years ago was that linguists don't even bother to look at uh, usage guides. I did a, um, a survey once because when I started uh, becoming, I mean, I'm a non-native speaker, so I've always been interested in the rules and because we learn them in school, uh, not by uh, picking them up naturally if you're a native speaker, for instance. So I've always been thinking about rules and where the rules come from, and I've done this for 18th century uh, grammars um, as well. So um, linguists, uh, oh yeah, I, I carried out a survey because I assumed that everybody uh, in the UK would possess a copy of Fowler's Modern English Usage. Ah. So I did a survey among the members of the Henry Sweet Society, Henry Sweet Society for the History of Linguistic Ideas, and very few people responded. I, I think they have about 150 members or so. Very few people responded. And uh, those that, that did respond said, no, 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 I don't have a Fowler, I don't use Fowler. And some people who did uh, uh, have a Fowler said, I only use consult Fowler to win uh, tedious battles about usage with my in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have not infrequently heard from uh, couples where one of the partners will say, my wife says this all the time and, and she says I'm wrong and settle the argument right. for us. <laughs> So it's sad to think that a usage guide, I mean, Fowler, I think, I mean, Fowler is very much um, uh, looked down upon as being a, well, a prescri prescriptive uh, uh, book, but he's actually quite interesting. He uh, he is funny to begin with. Yes, he, he's a uh, good writer. He's a good writer. Um, he's, uh, he's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, there's a lot of uh, um, descriptive work going on there in the book. Yes. Uh -huh. But the perception is contrary to that. The perception of Fowler's is that it's held up as, as the paragon of, of prescriptivism. That's right. That's right. Um, but he's, 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 he's great to, uh, to read. Um, I know very few people who've read Fowler from uh, cover to cover. Um, David Crystal, um, is one of them. 
and he wrote an inter introduction to uh, a reprint of uh, Fowler's Modern English Usage. And there, something else came out of my uh, survey um, uh, a while ago, that there are some people who uh, use Fowler's first edition, uh, 1926, so nearly 100 years old, <laughs> if they want advice on correct usage. And one of them was a linguist, actually. <laughs> so I was really surprised about that. Um, David Crystal's introduction to uh, uh, Fowler was for um, a modern reprint of the first edition, so the 1926 edition of the book. Um, and I thought that that can be, I mean, it's nice to do a, um, a classic reprint uh, like that. But it's also dangerous in the sense that um, uh, you uh, tell people that this is a good book and it's important to have and it's important to consult. But it's already nearly 100 years old. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you look at um, uh, the more modern, there's a fourth edition of Fowler that's come out. And uh, it's bound to be, I haven't actually tested that, but be, but uh, I will. Uh, it's bound to be more descriptive and more um, in the sense of, um, you know, you have the split infinitive and uh, the split, infin in, uh, split infinitive in the past didn't used to be acceptable. But now... Um, it's okay to use it, but you might be aware of the fact that there are some people who um, are still who still object to it. Right. That's that's and exactly that's my approach. <laughs> yes, exactly, and that's the um, the kind of thing I expect to find uh, across the years, so from 70, 1770 onwards, down to today. I mean, you asked earlier about what we were looking for, and that's what we're expecting to find. Uh -huh. But the the funny thing is, I have. Um, Got it here uh, next to me. This is one of the most recent usage guides we have in the database. It's by uh, Carolyn Taggart, and the book is called Her Ladyship's Guide to the Queen's English. So it's a British one. She is um, uh, as strict as the strictest uh, usage guide. So she says she doesn't like the modern like, for instance. She, uh. she thinks it's awful. And she uses these terms. I'm interested in... Um, proscriptive meta language so what terms uh, they they use and i find it very surprising that people still use the same um negative terms to condemn uh, usages words and constructions and so on as we find in the 18th century so this book by carolyn taggart is still in the tradition of 18th century usage guides the late late 18th century ones because it's a late 18th century phenomenon um even though it was published in 2010 Wow. And I find that fascinating, fascinating. I find I want to find out who buys these books. Now, this particular one was published by the National Trust. So if, in the, if you're in the UK and you go and visit a, uh, um, an old country house, for instance, you find it lying there. And uh, it's very tempting for people to just pick it up because it's very cheap. And they think it gives it's like give, gives people uh, something like um, uh, false security. If we have this book, if we... Um, have it, we might want to consult it, and uh, we have um, the Queen's English as a, a good model of usage. Don't you, think, don't you think, though, that a lot of the audience for those things is people who have their own prejudices, and they're just looking to have them confirmed yes, from yes, yes, a red exactly. source? It's not so much that they're having a powerful influence on people's actual usage, and I, I, you know, I don't think people stop themselves in mid-sentence and think, oh, well, that's right, I can't say it that way because I read the other day that that's wrong. That may happen occasionally. But um, you not, have, have you, you not, run into people who proudly call themselves grammar Nazis? Grammar Nazis, yes, they do. 
I mean, that just annoys me no so end. Stickless, stickless for correctness. Do with somebody that thinks that it's okay to call yourself a grammar Nazi. Uh, pardon? I just don't want anything to do with somebody who thinks it's okay to call themselves no, a grammar no, Nazi. You know Jeff Pullum, do you? Uh, yes. Okay, he wrote uh, an article for a, a volume that I'm editing, and he says it's a game. It's like a game of sexual perverts. <laughs> People want to um, continue to be punished by inflicting themselves on themselves this uh, whole idea of um, knowing that there's uh, a set of rules they have to uh, to stick to and uh, to feel insecure and to uh, make themselves uh, well even more insecure by knowing that um, these rules are there. I I doubt that very much myself. I you know I put together a well, section. Well, he sees them around him. He. Uh, Anyway, that's his point of view. It was a hilarious yeah. paper that he gave. And he's writing it up for us, so you'll have to wait for it to be published. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I wrote a section on my um, website, which is not segregated out in the book, called Non-Errors. And it's not just error. a list of many of the things that you're studying. That is things like split infinitives. Uh-huh. And, and, and I go through it and I say, you know, these are things that people often criticize, but they are... Um, Almost all uh, usage experts say they're perfectly fine. It's just an old-fashioned prejudice, and there's a, quite a long list of them. That right. page got hugely popular, and for a while it was treated like a meme around the Internet, and there were many, many people who didn't know anything about my site except the uh-huh. non-errors page. Uh-huh. Uh, and there, I, I would get all these letters saying, congratulations, oh, we needed somebody like you to get rid of all these picky. And they weren't reading any of my other writings. They were just no. narrowing in on, on that particular page. That's what bothers me about any study that doesn't thoroughly examine what's going on in usage guides, but only starts out with the presumption uh, we think we know what's wrong with descriptivism, and we're going to look for it and see how it evolves. And it's already defined rather than tracing, well, what is are these people actually doing that maybe isn't the same as what we found historically in older usage guides? Yeah. Well, um, we... We published our database. Uh, it's, it's available for free so that everybody who's interested in this sort of question can um, find out for themselves how people um, write about these things and how they wrote about these things in uh, history, how they're writing about it still today. And so they can um, form but their these own. These things are, are, are a pre-selected set of issues that you've decided you want to compare, right? You're not taking the full text of. I wish I wish we could. I wish we could, but we didn't have the um, the uh, manpower to do so because it's a huge, huge topic. Sure, but I think there's something circular about the project in that if you start with knowing which um, so-called problems annoy you, and then you look to see how persistent they are, you're studying it's one small aspect of usage guides they don't annoy me by the way i'm a descriptive uh, uh linguist i'm interested in we're being descriptive about prescriptivism if you like so right. we start- i didn't mean you personally i just no i know i know you didn't yeah. um so we started out we had to start somewhere so we started out with the uh, grammatical top 10 uh so-called by david crystal in his uh, encyclopedia of the english language 
then we um, expanded those 10 uh, um, items by uh, looking into uh, Mittens et al. I don't know if you know the study from 1970, um, Attitudes to English usage, because we're also interested in attitudes to English usage. So we're trying to get people to talk about uh, uh, usage problems and to see what they think, why, why they have these opinions about why it is impossible to use um, preposition stranding uh, or whether they think it should be it is I or it is me. And if they have any problems about that. So we want people to to discuss these things, which is hard enough as it is. Do you know the book 500 Mistakes of Daily Occurrence? No, that, that's not one I run into. Um, 1856, I used to think it was the first American usage guide, but there's another one uh, by um, Heard. Let me see, got it here as well, called uh, The Grammatical Corrector. Uh, but anyway, those, those 500 um, mistakes of daily occurrence, many of them are still around in usage guides today. And that's a fascinating uh, uh, idea. I find that so there's a kind of uh, almost like a, a stable um, uh, collection of usage problems that have been around that go back to Robert Louth, for instance, in the uh, uh -huh. in the 1760s and that people wrote in in um, review literature. So in journals and magazines at the time. And they're still the same. And there's still a lot of people like Karen in Taggart, for instance, in the, her ladyship's. Her Ladyship's Guide to the Queen's English, who still have the same opinions. And I find that fascinating in uh, the usage guide as a genre, that there are uh, the, the same opinions over and over again. There are uh, 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 more enlightened uh, uh, usage guide writers. I mean, Fowler, for instance, is one, but he gets uh, uh, sort of branded as the arch prescriptivist, but he's much more subtle uh, than that, and that is something you find uh, Quite commonly, also with Robert Lauf, he's, he's much more descriptive than the uh, prescriptive uh, label that's been put to him. And I find that fascinating as a general uh, a, a general uh, feature, if you see what I mean, that people develop notions about prescriptivism that are not actually there in the facts when you look at them in detail. And that's something that I want to do research on, that I'm doing research on, that I want to uh, learn more about, why that is the case. Do you see, Mark, what I mean? Yeah. Can I suggest something that um, I think that technology may have something to do with this too? Um, because we know from uh, Shakespeare that grammar rules as we understand them today did not exist in Shakespeare's time. And well, they always exist. Okay, I see what you mean. There were no well, all, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't mean they did, they didn't exist, but what I mean is the, the standardization of usage was not, the proliferation of standard usage advice was not prevalent back then because people did not have access to printed material. And, and the idea that you would, you know, write something down and have it widely distributed as a, a guide, it has to come later with, with the technology of the book and proliferation and communication and ability to communicate these ideas and get them more codified in print. Now, you know when it all began, when prescriptivism really all began was when um, Dryden started um, rewriting some of Shakespeare's plays. And mm. then he discovered that Shakespeare... Um, 
made all kinds of grammatical uh, errors. He was looking at the language, of course, from a Latin point of view, uh, a subject being a nominative. And so you'd have to say it is I and not, not it is me, for instance. And you couldn't use double negation because two negatives, as in Latin, made um, a positive. You shouldn't use preposition stranding because preposition means preposed and not uh, having a preposition at the end. And what Dryden did was he had his English writing translated, his own writing, he translated it into Latin and then translated it back into uh, English again to see <laughs> to see uh, what he was doing um, himself in the language. And uh, he then, um, uh, he... I mean, the two uh, the two things hang together. So his uh, noticing that uh, uh, Shakespeare made grammatical mistakes from a Latin grammatical perspective. He also was confronted with the fact that the language had changed since Shakespeare, since um, since Shakespeare originally wrote those plays, and he uh, 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 had to felt he had to update them. And that is how it all began. He became very self conscious about his own language and started removing all his. A stranded prepositions from his writings and that right. creates a kind of atmosphere at the time beginning of the uh, 18th century right. when uh, people became focused on what was meant by correct grammar and starting crit- started criticizing each other's each other for that could i make a few uh, comments on, on what yeah, you've yeah, been yeah. saying um first of all um on fowler um, one of the things that I set out to do was to try to be more readable than Fowler. Fowler can be fun to read, but he is very snobbish about his examples and doesn't use sentences that normal readers who are struggling with their usage would understand. So I try to keep my level of diction much lower and often use very common uh, place things. He's also, he can be witty, but he's not terribly funny. <clears throat> and I try to keep mine entertaining. I get a lot of writing from people who say I t- started to look something up and I enjoyed reading what he had to say so much that I couldn't stop for an hour. And okay. it, it's just really and the humor is quite gets commented on. Of course, in the book, you know, we've got the cartoons that Tom yes. put together. Yes. Um, the second thing is. This this uh, idea that there's the usage guides are sort of floating out there as a separate level from real usage out in society, I think, is an exaggeration. What I think there is is a vast sea of people who have circulated among themselves from teachers, from colleagues, from their bosses, from their editors, from their girlfriends, from whoever, these various ideas about what's right and wrong in language and uh, that they make up a, a sizable proportion of the population. I don't know what percentage they are, but I certainly hear from them all the time. And these people are not writers. They are not prescriptivists in the sense that they are not writing books on it. So these books don't exist in a vacuum. There, there's a, a, a pre-made audience of people who already share a lot of these notions, and they didn't get them from usage guides in many cases. They've just heard uh, maybe their mother saying, you shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition. The dislike of certain usages is just as much a sociolinguistic phenomenon as changing usage is. The two things are just two parts of the same kind of process. I think so. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Ingrid, I I think that that's... Probably um, 
I think that's good. <laughs> Thank you for everything. And your project sounds very interesting to me, and I'll be interested to see your book. Do you know when your book might be available? It should be um, It should be finished by the end of the this academic year. So I think in a year's time it should be finished. And your what does your publisher say about when your book will be available? I don't have a publisher yet because I'm I'm go I have a publisher in mind, but with this publisher I have in mind we already have another uh, uh, book proposal, and I don't want to inflict two book proposals on them at the same time. Ah. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, we'll look for your your book at some point uh, down the road, and we'll continue to follow you at your blog. Can I say? Can I add one more thing? Yes. What I'm really interested in is the uh, the people behind all this, which is uh, why I started looking uh, for Paul on the internet, and I wrote you an email asking you um, asking you about life, your life's details, when you were born, uh. what um, your birthday was tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, um, who who they are, how old they were when they wrote usage guides, because that's another uh, uh, very interesting phenomenon. You find very few, very young people writing usage guides. Uh, Bill Bryson, I think, is an exception because he was in his 30s, I think, if I got, got that correctly. Mm. And, uh, and that is part of the phenomenon of the usage guide, the people who are behind mm. it. That might be partly just people who write books. <laughs> some of them. Some of them are. And not not a usage guide, but a very famous article by David Foster Wallace uh, when he was, of course, quite young because he did not live long. But um, uh, you know what I'm talking about, do you? The the uh, piece he wrote for Harper's uh-huh. Magazine, uh, <laughs> very uh, scathing, and it was it was as prescriptivist as you like. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> more so than I, I think, uh, it was, uh, there was plenty there to offend any, everybody. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but so, yeah, you're right, though. It's pro, I assume that I, I just take your word for it that that's probably a phenomenon that younger writers don't tend to go into this territory. Well, some of my writers, old, old writers, like this herd, uh, I was talking about, uh, 1847, he spent years traveling around America at that time and collecting uh, uh, all kinds of um, uh, variables in the language usage problems and uh, putting them before he was able to put them into a book. So he had to invest a lot of time in order to make his collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's not something that you can just dash off without having a little more experience uh, in your background too. And in the meantime, Ingrid, we're going to follow your blog at bridgingtheunbridgeable.com. Yes. And uh, keep, we'll keep ourselves posted and looking out for your book on the history of usage guides. All right. And thank well, you for thank you so much. much for being willing to do this. It's been great. It's, it's been uh, great um, uh, to talk to you and to get to know you. And um, uh, I love what you're doing. thank you thank you very much and thank you for joining us today for the conversation thank you and happy birthday Paul tomorrow (laughs) thank you (laughs) 
That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.